Hey, this morning I want you to bring to mind uh, a great movie, whatever, what is one of your favorite movies, maybe one that you watch over and over, and yet the one which the major character dies in the end. All the suspense leads up to the major character actually dying in the end. Uh, maybe it was Maximus in Gladiator, or Captain Miller in Saving Private Ryan, or maybe the greatest hero of all movies, Jack in Titanic, amen? Whoa. Angry crowd. Maybe it was William Wallace in Braveheart. And the characters die, and it's pretty shocking and unsettling. And matter of fact, it may even bring on tears. I mean, I've, I've never cried at one of those movies, but maybe some of you have, all right? And yet we love those movies, and we watch them over and over, even though it's unsettling when the hero dies. What would happen, though, if those characters died at the beginning of the movie? Have you considered that? What if you went to see the new James Bond movie and uh, 007 dies in the opening scene? Ten minutes into the movie, he dies, and suddenly the credits start to roll at that point. It may be the most realistic James Bond movie ever, and at the same time the worst movie ever, but the death in the beginning would derail the entire movie. Uh, turn through this morning to Acts chapter 12, because we're going to see a similar scene play out in the movie that we've been unfolding called the story or the movement through the gospel of the book of Acts. Many of you may have noticed, hey, we're skipping over chapter 11. And the reason is because chapter 11 is just a fleshing out of what they said would happen in chapter 10. And so the movement's really started to pick up steam at this point. It started with Jewish converts in, mostly centered in Jerusalem. Then it spread out to the Greek-speaking Jews, and then it spread out to the Samaritans who were half Jewish and half not. And then eventually, last week, we saw Peter hesitantly taking the Gospels to the Gentiles, ceremonially unclean people up until that point in their eyes. And so the Gospel movement is picking up speed. It is like a freight train now. And so we get into chapter 12, and we start to read the first two verses. Here's what it says. It says, about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. We're 15 minutes into the movie, and James, James the disciple, is killed in the opening scene. This is shocking. This is James Bond dying at the very beginning of the movie. This is James, the brother of the apostle John. This is James, one of the original 12 disciples. This is the man who, when Jesus said, hey, drop your nets, lay aside your livelihood and follow me, immediately James just said, I'm all in. Right from the very beginning. This is James, one of the best friends of Jesus, part of the inner circle of Peter, James, and John. This is the man who was with Jesus when he was transfigured in Matthew chapter 17. He was with Jesus when he raised a 12-year-old girl to life in Luke chapter 8. He's the James who's with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane in Mark chapter 14, praying with him on the night of his arrest, and in the opening credits of the scene here in chapter 12, he gets killed. But unlike Maximus or William Wallace, when James dies, he only gets a, a brief mention. He doesn't get to write a book like John or like Peter. There's no song, there's no movie, there's no incredible final speech like Stephen had in Acts chapter 8. And yes, Stephen's death was tragic, but he was a Hellenist Jew turned a deacon. This is James, a major player in the movement of the gospel. And he's executed in the opening scene of the movie. 
And for those members of the early church, they had withstood opposition after opposition after opposition. But when James gets executed, they had to begin to battle unbelief and wrestle it down. Think, okay, this is it. This whole thing that we've given our lives for and tried to join in and, and follow Jesus in this mission, this thing is getting ready to collapse. But what we're going to see today in Acts chapter 12 uh, through the hindsight of church history is simply this, is that nothing can stop the movement of the gospel forward. There's an old southern gospel song. Any southern gospel fans in here in the room? That's why I wore my tie today in honor of that, all right? There's an old southern gospel song that says this, if God be for us, who can be against us? No enemy can stand against the power of his word. All right, so Acts chapter 12, let's pick up the text here, verses 1 through 5. It says, about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. little side note, you ever heard anybody say threatening, I'm about to lay hands on someone? That started in the Bible, all right? So it says, Herod said, here, I'm about to lay some hands on somebody in a violent way. Verse 2 says, he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, it just gets worse. He proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. And so when Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. And so here this Young, early church, have no resources, no influence. Already from the very beginning, they've experienced opposition after opposition. And God sovereignly has had to move the movement forward. But this is a huge crisis point. James gets killed. And then, if that weren't bad enough, Peter, one of the other leaders in this early church, in the inner circle of Jesus, gets arrested and put into prison. And all under the rule of a godless leader named Herod. And here's the reality. Just as persecution came against the early church, persecution will continue to come against the church all the way until Jesus Christ returns. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, guess what the Bible says? You are the church. And so as you seek to join the movement and spread the gospel out to your neighbors and ultimately to the nations, there will be opposition that comes against the church. It has from the very beginning. And so how do we see them Respond As opposition from the culture comes against this gospel movement, how do we see the church respond? I want to highlight two things in Acts chapter 12 here this morning. So the first thing I want you to see is simply this, is you should choose prayer as your first response. If we're honest in this current cultural climate that we're living in, when someone pushes back against a biblical worldview, when someone speaks ill of Christians in culture today, far too often, our first response is not prayer. Our first response is confrontation. Our first response is not to get down on our knees. It's to get on the keyboard and get nasty with someone on social media, all right? Let me just drop this nugget, even though it's really early in the sermon, all right? No one wins in the comment section on Facebook. Did you know that? Like, no one's like, you know, I was totally opposed to Jesus, and there's this ugly debate on the, online, and I started reading these comments, and miraculously, I was converted on the Damascus Road right there on Facebook, right? Never happens. And so but the pattern we see modeled over and over in the early church is not to call to arms, it's not to raise up, and let's take up an offering so we can rally the troops, let's not, you know, hitch our wagons to some 
cultural, political leader in Rome, it was always prayer. And if we're going to experience the kind of cultural shifting power that the early church had, prayer has to be our first response as well. Here's something I want you to understand. If you ever read through the history of revivals and great awakenings in America, guess what? When prayer happens in the church... D.L. Moody said this, he said, every great movement of God in all of church history can be traced back to a single kneeling figure. And when revival comes, the overflow is that culture transforms. And the problem is right now, we're getting it backwards. We're going to transform the culture so that revival can come. And that's exactly the opposite of what happens in all of church history. And so many of you are probably grieved at where we are in culture. Listen, I am too. But if we fail to pray, then what we're saying is this, that the great spiritual battles that we're seeing play out in culture can be won in the power of the flesh. We don't need to dependently posture ourselves in prayer, but, but somehow we can organize our efforts and get a better campaign together and get you know, things moving in the right direction. But the reality is simply this, we don't see that in the early church. Over and over and over, every single opposition was met, not, not with open hostility, but with posture of dependent prayer. And you say, well, I just feel like we've been preaching on dependent prayer a lot the last couple of years. Listen, unapologetically. Unapologetically. Because we see it over and over in the early church. Look with me again at verse 5. What does it say? And so Peter was kept imprisoned. Here's the great leader. This guy's in prison. And if that were us today, we would say, we've got to form some kind of movement or organization or you know, lobby someone or you know, those kind of things, and we've got to get him out of here. What did the early church do? It says, but earnest prayer was made, for him, uh, made to God by the church. The whole church responds and says, hey, we're in a crisis. And what do we do when we're in a crisis? We pray and ask God to move and do what we could not do. And because of that, the church had incredible power to transform the culture. And when culture transformed, when God showed up as a response to believing prayer, guess what? No one but God could get the glory from that. No one could look at those early Jewish converts and go, well, they're just politically savvy, or man, they've got all kinds of financial resources, they're influenced in culture. No, when God responded to believing prayer, everybody sat back and said, wow, look at the God they serve. And culture began to transform. Verse 5 says prayers are made by the church. Not, not prayer warriors in the church. Not the deacons. Not the pastors or the staff. It says the church offered up earnest prayers. One of the great gifts given to the early church was the absence of resources. Now, let me just ask you a question. Does anybody ever find in your own personal pattern of prayer, find yourself praying, God, remove my resources? I'm just being honest. I've never prayed that in my life. Right? But one of the great gifts God gave to the early church was the absence of resource. Matter of fact, go back to the end of chapter 11 and look at verse 28. This describes the situation preceding what's going on here in Acts chapter 12. And so Acts chapter 11 verse 28 says this, And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit, here it is, listen, that there would be a great famine all over the world they've got no political clout they've got no financial resources 
Literally, they're starving to death at that point. And the reason this was a gift, that they had no resources, here's why. When tangible resources go up, dependent prayer goes down. That's one of the great dangers in American Christianity. We shouldn't feel guilty that we're born in this country of prosperity. We should be grateful, grateful for sacrifices that were made. But the danger we have to be aware of is this, is that in the abundance of resources, guess what? Dependent prayer often goes down. You find places, if you've ever been on the mission field, where they're living in poverty, guess what they're rich in? The power of prayer. God moves and they pray. If you look at church history, instead of the explosion of the gospel in Asian countries, it was all traced to movements of dependent prayer. And so the pattern we see in the book of Acts over and over is various people and circumstances would rise up against the church. I mean, what, what are these group of people going to do against Herod? How, how in the world? James is dead. Peter is in prison, and a godless ruler is reigning over the land. They're, they're starving to death. And so what do they do? They pray and ask God to move. They totally believe that God responds to believing prayer. It was their first option, not their last resort. Maybe you heard the story about the church who were having all kinds of conflict and effort to straighten things out. The pastor called together a special meeting of the deacons. The meeting went well into the night, past midnight. They exhausted strategy after strategy in their attempts to fix the problem. And finally, after midnight, the pastor said, Gentlemen, we've exhausted every single option we have to fix the problem. The only thing left to do now is to pray. At that point, one of the deacons buried his face in his hands and said, Oh, no, has it really come to that? That's a joke, by the way. It's funny. You guys got that. <laughs> but here's the reality. That's a sad truth, is it not? Has it really come to that? Is it really our last resort instead of our first response when opposition comes into our lives as we seek to advance the gospel? Here in Acts chapter 12, not only is there an absence of resources because the famine described in chapter 11, there is a formidable foe in King Herod. You ever read the Bible and kept seeing this name over and over, different names? You're like, well, I thought they were over here, and then I'm reading they're over here, and I thought they were related to this person. In the Bible... Oftentimes, uh, there are different people playing out in redemptive history with the exact same name. And so sometimes it gets confusing. That's true with Herod as well. There are three different Herods in the Bible, but they're all related. And so the Herod here in Acts chapter 12 is the grandson of Herod the Great who slaughtered the Jewish baby boys in an attempt to kill Jesus at the Passover. So this is his grandson. He's the nephew of King Herod, who oversaw the illegal trial of Jesus. So if you're the early church and opposition's coming against you, this is not exactly the family tree that you want standing in your way, right? You, you don't want to get on ancestry in the early church like, hey, good news. He's related to the guy that tried to kill Jesus, and he's also related to the guy that tried Jesus, and so clearly we're in a good place here. And the church had to be questioning why is God letting this wicked king prosper? The church had to be questioning, why are the righteous continuing to suffer? And when they had no answers, they went to the one who did in prayer. They petitioned to God who could not be opposed. Years ago, John Piper wrote an incredible book. Maybe some of you have read it. It's called Let the Nations Be Glad. It's a book on missions. If you've never read it, you want to have a heart for missions, read this book. And one of the best 
truths in this book, because one of the things that Piper did is he did a study, and he wrote down every single prayer that the early church prayed. And it's if you want to see why the gospel went forward from Jerusalem all throughout the nations, here it is. Here's every single prayer that the early church prayed. And Piper gives this quote in the book. Here's what he said. He said, probably the number one reason prayer malfunctions in the hands of believers is that we try to turn a wartime walkie-talkie into a domestic intercom. Remember those old houses you would go in that have that intercom system? You know what I'm talking about? Anybody still have one in your house? Yeah, listen, you're a hero of the faith if you do. I just want to say that, right? Anytime, like, if we ever in our lives we were looking for a house, they're like, hey, there's one of those intercoms that's been there for years that doesn't work. I can't help myself. Hello? Nothing, right? Like, hey, if you move in, you can tear that out. No way. Piper said, that's what we think prayer's like. A domestic intercom. But listen to what he said. He said, until you know that life is war, you cannot know what prayer is for. He said, because there's no urgency, there's no watching, there's no vigilance, just easy peace and prosperity. And what did we do with the walkie-talkie? Listen to what he says. We tried to rig it up as an intercom in our houses, not to call in firepower for conflict with the enemy, but to ask for more comforts in the den. What's he saying? He says, prayer is a wartime walkie-talkie. And as the gospel seeks to go forth in godless cultures from the book of Acts all the way until today, there will be opposition that comes. And your first response should be to dial up God in walkie-talkie, wartime prayer and ask God to do what only God can do. And so what does that mean? That means that uh, when, when culture begins to oppose the church, uh, prayer is a better weapon than Facebook. Matter of fact, every time you feel tempted to post something, just pray about it instead and watch what God does. In Acts 12, their first response to opposition was to ask God to do what only he could do. Now, let me make this clear as I can before we move on. The only strategy, I want you to hear me, the only strategy the early church had, the only resource they had, the only hopes they had of getting the gospel to go forward was prayer. That's it. That's it. And here in our culture, we've got all kinds of resources. We've got marketing campaigns, and we've got all kinds of you know, exciting things we can do in the life of the church. And, but the sad truth is, if we're not careful as this, is we can put our hope of the gospel going forward in smoke machines and skinny jeans instead of the power of prayer. Over and over and over. And so... What keeps us from dependent prayer? Because here's, here's the reality this morning. No one's going, you know what? I had no idea the church should be prayerful. <laughs> I've, I'm so glad I came today. You got infinitely smarter when you clipped on that tie this morning. Wow, right? So what keeps us from this type of prayer that we see modeled in the early church that literally can transform culture? It's not because we're ignorant. It's because we're battling unbelief and idolatry. Listen, the issue always comes down to the heart affection. And the idol that takes root in our hearts that causes us to not turn to prayer is often the idol of pride. The greatest evidence of pride in our lives is prayerlessness. Because pride says, I can. 
I can figure it out. I've got the resource. I've got the experience. I've got the intellect. I've got the charisma. I work hard and discipline myself. I can figure this out. But prayer says openly and dependently, I cannot, God, you're going to have to move in this situation. And so if you want to respond like the early church responded, with prayer as your first response to opposition, ask God to expose and uproot the idols of pride in your life. You say, what, what, what is a life of prayerlessness? How, how does that turn out? Is it really that big of a deal? Let me quote to you Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 5, that describes the self-reliant man, the person who doesn't petition God for anything. Here's what it says. Cursed is the man who, uh, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. You say, what does the Bible say about a person who's Thinks they can figure everything out in the flesh. Jeremiah 17, 5 says, Cursed is the man who trusted man himself and whose strength is in his flesh. But that's the exact opposite of what we see here in Acts chapter 12. We read this. But earnest prayer for him, Peter, was made to God by the church. Can you imagine their prayers? God, I didn't see this going that way. When James got killed with a sword, I... That didn't seem to be helpful. But here's the good news. Peter's still here and Peter's bold and, oh, Peter's in prison. Maybe God will raise up a righteous king. And there's Herod the Great. And so let me give you the cliff notes on what happens next. Peter's literally chained between two guards because they're not going to let him get away. Remember Acts chapter 5, Peter escapes? Remember that? And like, that, that's not happening again. And so we're going to chain him up. And so verse 7 says this. Look at it. It says, And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. Two times. An angel fetched Peter out of prison, but, but don't. Don't misunderstand this. It was prayer that fetched the angel. In chapter 5, the church is praying. An angel shows up and delivers Peter. And you say, well, how do we know the church was praying here? Look at verse 12. What does it say? He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, and listen to this, where many were gathered together and were praying. And so in Acts chapter 12, prayer is the first response. Listen, if you want to be a Christian that changes the world and changes the culture, Prayer has to be the first response of your life, not the last resort. And the second thing we see in Acts chapter 12 is when we face opposition to the gospel going forward and living for Christ in a godless culture, is secondly is this, you should take refuge in the sovereignty of God. Refuge and rest. And try. Now what is it to take refuge in something? It's to trust in something to the place that it brings you great comfort. That's what we do with idols. Idols promise us refuge. Hey, if you trust in me instead of Jesus Christ, I'll give you less fear, better identity, more joy, less, you know, all those kinds of things. Take refuge in the sovereignty of God. If there was a motto that could describe the early church's response to all the challenges they faced in this godless culture, it would sound like this. Pray like it depends on you, but trust that it depends on God. And guess what? That's still true. 
That's still the pattern of joining God in the movement of getting the gospel out. So we pray dependently and desperately, but at the end of the day, we don't give in to despair no matter what's going on in the culture around us. Why? Because God is sovereignly orchestrating all events for redemptive history to end exactly how he proclaimed it would end. And so while it sounds like cliche, we're challenged once again to trust God sovereignly and providentially to work things out. That we shouldn't be panicked about. Look at verse 12. It says, when Peter was released, he went to the house of Mary where many were gathered and were praying. Verse 13, and when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice. Now remember, they think Peter's in prison. They're just praying, God do something. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy she did not open the gate. It's like you and the Amazon driver comes to your house, right? And she runs back in and stands, standing, leaves Peter standing at the gate. And they said to her, verse 15, you're out of your mind. They're in a prayer meeting asking God to move. Peter knocks on the door. She looks out, runs away, leaves him standing at the door, the gate. And she goes back and goes, hey, there's someone at the door. It's Peter. They say, hey, you've been day drinking, right? That's, what, that's what's going on here. Trust me. But she kept insisting, verse 15, that it was. <laughs> and so they kept saying, it's his angel. You know what they kept saying? It's not him. You know what they're saying here? There's a little unbelief going on. If you, can, you can see this. Yes, there was power in prayer, but they battled unbelief as well. You know what they're saying here? They're saying, hey, God doesn't answer prayer like that. So they battle that same unbelief. Let's pray for something and be totally shocked when God answers. Peter's at the door. No, he's not. Get back to praying that God will release Peter from prison. He's outside. You're drunk, Right? Verse 16, but Peter continued knocking. Are you going to open the gate? And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, because he didn't want them to alert the people who were trying to persecute them, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. You know what happens every single time that the church is opposed early in the book of Acts, we've seen already multiple times here, listen, God providentially and sovereignly orchestrates unlikely events. Why? To keep the gospel going forward. And so how should that comfort our hearts? That means when opposition comes against us as we seek to promote Christ and exalt Christ and spread the message of Christ in a godless culture, there will be persecution. There will be people that are pushing back on that. And you and I should not freak out. Why? Because God has a history of sovereignly moving the gospel forward in the most unlikely of circumstances. He wants everyone to know that he is totally in control. Every single place in the book of Acts where it looked like things are in jeopardy, this whole thing's going to fall apart. God says, no, not so fast. I'm still in charge. I'm still on the throne. This thing is still going according to my plan. It's going to end exactly how I said it's going to end. Nothing is in jeopardy. And so what happens in the narrative is that Herod gets so angry 
that he executes all the guards who are watching Peter. And here's why. Without their testimony to say, look what God did. Herod can say, Those, it wasn't God at work. God doesn't get the glory for this. It was incompetent guards. And so he kills all the guards. He wants everyone to know that, that he, Herod, is in control, not God. And at any point, if he wants to snuff out the church, he could choose to do that very thing. Later in the chapter, I was still in the midst of a worldwide famine. Herod puts on his royal robes and stands before the kingdom and gives a State of the Union address. And he gets up and speaks, and the Jewish historian Josephus records this. It's not the Bible, this is just in Jewish recorded history. He records that, listen, Herod's robes were made of silver so that they sparkled in the sun when he spoke before the people. Write this down. Herod, not Elvis, introduced the sequin jumpsuits right here. All right? And so there, Herod, like I killed those guys. God's not at work. I can shut this thing down anytime. I'm Herod. Right? He walks out in a sequin jumpsuit. He's like, hey, I'm going to share something with you. And it must have worked. Because here's what it says. Look down at verse 22. It must have been impressive as the sun hit his Silvery, sparkled, bedazzled suit. Verse 22 says, This is the voice of a God, not man. And then verse 23 says this. Talk about God being sovereign. Here's a guy who's out there so impressive that when he speaks, the people are going, this isn't a normal human. This is some kind of God. And so there's Herod trying to steal the glory from God, trying to oppose the church, saying, I can do whatever I want, shut this thing down anytime I want. Verse 23. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down. Listen to this. And he was eaten by worms and died. Now, you ever... You ever go out when it's raining out and there's all those worms on the sidewalk? How gross is that? This week it's raining and Pastor Tyler and I are going out. There's worms all over the sidewalk. I look over, he's crying. I have to carry him to his car like a child. <laughs> Listen, if he was Herod, they would have come off the sidewalk and ate him alive. Verse 24. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. James dies full speed ahead. Peter gets thrown into prison, abracadabra, right? Second time. Herod, the godless and murderous leader, tries to steal, steal the glory from God by being the hero, worm food. Matter of fact, we almost titled this message The Folly of Fighting God because in the end, once we see this, hey, no matter what's going on in the culture around you, God is sovereignly moving the gospel forward. So we should take refuge in the sovereignty of God no matter what's going on around us. So how do we make this truth practical in the lives we're living here in the U.S. in the year 2021? So let me just offer two things this morning, all right? A hustle. Number one, first, the belief that God will sovereignly overcome anyone or anything that stands against the church should greatly reduce the anxiety we feel at times connected to the political landscape. 
Someone asked me, then with the other election cycle, oh, you worried, you freaked out, you freaked out. I said, I'm actually, I'm not. And I've heard these, I've said this multiple times, let me say it again. Listen, no matter who's in the White House, Christ is coming back on a white horse. That's what the Bible says. He's not coming to take sides, he's coming to take over and offer a new and better kingdom. And so what does it mean? The Bible says this in Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 21. The hearts of kings are like water in the hand of God, and he turns it however he wants. And so to get freaked out about the political landscape as if it's going to hurt the gospel going forward is to behave like God is not sovereign. It's practical atheism. Yes, God's sovereign. Man, all throughout church history, here in the book of Acts, this incredibly godless leader, Herod, is going to get up and squash out the church and snuff out our gospel witness. And God says, hey, He's worm food. And so what does that mean? That no matter what's going on politically around us, you and I can take refuge in the sovereignty of God. The church will be triumphant is what the Bible says. And so this is not some history lesson about what God did. And listen, uh, if I understand the Bible correctly, um, godless kings and rulers are going to be the norm. And if I understand prophecy correctly, it's going to get worse, not better. Nothing wrong with being concerned. Nothing wrong with practicing convictional kindness and speaking up and standing up. Nothing wrong with desiring and voting for America to be governed in a certain way. But to come to the place where you're caving into debilitating fear and anxiety because of what's going on in the political landscape, go back and read Acts chapter 12. And say, hey, I, I don't like this and... I didn't want that and vote for that, but at the end of the day, I'm taking refuge not in who's in the White House. I'm taking refuge that God is sovereign. And if God has to cast down a godless leader to get the gospel to go forth, he's did it once, he did it multiple times, he'll do it again. And I'm going to make an argument that a Christian living with God-centered confidence in a political landscape of chaos makes Jesus attractive. Repeat that, it's a good place for an amen, you missed it, all right? A Christian living with God-centered confidence in a political landscape of chaos makes Jesus attractive. And the people should look at our lives and say, man, you're not freaked out by anything. It's not that we're not concerned, but you're not freaked out by this. Why is that? Let me tell you a story about the God I serve. The gospel going forth. And I've shared this with you on several occasions. And sometimes we get freaked out. Well, I'm not worried about me. I'm worried about my kids and my grandkids. And so I've, just, I've counseled hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people over the last 20 years. And let me just tell you this. Whatever's going on at your house has far more spiritual impact on your kids and grandkids than what's going on in the White House. In 20 years of counseling people, I've never had someone say, what's the root heart issue here? I just, it's what's going on in the White House. But lots of times people have said, it's the things that have gone on in my house. And so how does this take refuge in the sovereignty of God? We're not freaked out by the political landscape. Here is a godless leader. Here is a godless leader. And in order to get the gospel to go forward, God makes him worm food. That's how sovereign God is. All right, so we're not freaked out. Let me move from the political into the personal. Uh, my guess is this, is that many of you struggle to think that you're actually making a difference for Jesus. You ever feel that way? I feel that way. I feel that way, and I'm a pastor. 
You ever have the devil get in the passenger seat with you on the way to church or home from church? Wasting your time, wasting your money, challenging the results of your labor for the Lord. For those of you who have battled this question, let me just encourage you with these words. You should write down this reference. You can look it up later. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58 says this. So, my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord. Listen, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. And there are times in a godless culture where you feel like you're serving the Lord and trying to spread the gospel and trying to witness to your neighbors and trying to love people and pray for people and you know, serve and do all those kinds of things and be on mission. You feel like it's not working. I'm not making any difference. What Acts chapter 12 says is, hey, God is sovereignly moving this thing forward and God in his sovereignty has allowed you to play a part of it. And so the good news is this. No matter how discouraged you get in your labor for the Lord, guess what? The team that you're on wins in the end is what the Bible says. And so multiple times God says sovereignly, hey, join in on this movement. And the disciples would have had to say, this is not going well. Clearly we're not changing the culture. And God says, watch what I do. Just join me and trust me. So we see that all throughout the book of Acts. Since the beginning of time, Satan has always sought to stand in the way of the gospel going forward and the church being exalted. Sometimes he sends death our way. Sometimes it's imprisonment and persecution. Sometimes it's godless leaders like Herod, Nero, all throughout church history. Did you know this? In Acts chapter 12, the same tactics he used in his, in his attempts were the same ones to stop Jesus. A wicked governor and Pilate couldn't stop the gospel from going forward. The imprisonment of the early disciples couldn't stop the gospel going forward. What couldn't stop the death of Jesus? They crucified him. What did they think? If we kill the leader, this thing is done for. If we kill James, these rest of these guys will scatter. If we kill Jesus, the leader, this, this whole thing will... Fade off into history. But the Bible says that Jesus already conquered death. And so Paul, Stephen's murder, later says this. Oh, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You are on the winning team. Your labor for the Lord will not be in vain. God will sovereignly proclaim victory over all the godless leaders in opposition against the church. And so you're not wasting your life. You're investing your life in something eternal. Be encouraged. And so when opposition comes our way, the gospel message doesn't teach us to run out and face life's giants with our slingshots. The gospel teaches this. We have a king named Jesus who fought for us and has already slayed the giant of sin on our behalf. And so church, when you seek to advance the gospel and live for Jesus in a godless culture, move forward with gospel confidence. Because if God be for us, who can stand against us? Literally, no enemy can stand against the power of his word. Would you bow your heads this morning?
with your head bowed this morning, I just want to ask you a simple question in light of the truth that we've encountered here in Acts chapter 12. Can you say with integrity this morning that the first response you have when there's opposition from a godless culture or godless people in your life is prayer. And if it's not, would you just confess that to the Lord? Repent of that. Turn away from it. And by faith today, would you pray and say, Jesus, I need you to empower me this very week that when I encounter opposition to your name, that I wouldn't get angry, I wouldn't get defensive, I wouldn't get afraid or anxious, but I'd get down on my knees and I would trust you to do what I cannot do in that moment. Maybe you're here and you say, hey, I'm, I know we've been reminded many times that God sovereignly is moving the gospel forward, but I, I find myself giving in to anxiety about what's going on in the political landscape, and I'm worried about the church, and I'm worried about the gospel going forward. And, and so if that's you this morning, it's easy to get there. Easy to get there. Would you just pray right now, say, Lord, this very week, Every time that anxiety, that anger, that fear starts to creep up, every single time, God, help me declare by faith you're sovereign. No one or nothing can stand against the gospel going forward. And so help me to live that way. Father, I pray this week that we would seek to take the message of Jesus to our neighbors, to the nations. And that God, as we do, God, we would practice a convictional kindness, a boldness, knowing no matter what's going on in culture around us, God, you're sovereign. So may we take refuge in that take refuge in the fact that our service to the Lord is not wasted. Jesus has already won the victory. And so Lord, encourage us this week with these truths. Help us to live in light of them. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.